Fear the Walking Dead, the podcast, an unofficial discussion of the news and events surrounding Fear the Walking Dead with Quinn Warner, Stephen Payne, and Bruce McGee. I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. And this is Fear the Walking Dead, a podcast, uh, episode for season two, episode nine, is that right? No, I think so. Because last week was Grotesque was the name of it. Um, 2.9, maybe. <laughs> and, uh, right, that's what this one is. I guess this one could be uh, Training Men, Zombie Men. <laughs> <laughs> um, hallelujah. Um so, um, yeah, this one, I think you were pointing out before we went to Mike that um, this episode is more plot-driven than um, character-driven mm-hmm. because we don't get the interior lives of any of the characters. And I guess we have, uh, last week of our core cast, we only had one person the whole time, and that was Nick. And, Occasionally, his mom or somebody in the flesh. But this time, we had <coughs> Nick and his mom and his sister Alicia and Strand, and the three of them are together in another place. And uh, they've been kind of hunting Nick. And uh, Ophelia too, that that other character that's kind of become part of that right. little, what would you call it, like a surrogate family or whatever. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's a line like that, isn't there? In the narrative somewhere about that, they're essentially they're all family. Now. I mean, they've been thrown. They're a family that's been created out of circumstance instead of being born into a particular you know unit. And they're what they have, because uh, her dad. Last we saw him, he was sitting in the middle of the fire. Uh, that you know, remember the last episode. Mm-hmm. And um, they were burning the basement full of zombies. I have a feeling he made it out, but that's all. But yeah. Now that's which character is that again? Oh, uh, her dad, Ruben. Blattis. Oh, Ruben Blattis's character, yeah. uh, Salazar. Salazar. Yeah. So um. Yeah, he's too. He's too. He's like Strand. He's too good a character to waste, and he's got such a right. mysterious past, just like Strand does. Well, and to just having him die off screen without any further explanation—that would truly be a waste. If you're going to kill one of your major characters, you're going to watch him die. It's it's a real cheat. it would be a real cheat you know that's what they call those things and where you have a, introduce a character only to kill them off just to get some gratuitous sympathy. You know, incited in the in the readers or the viewers or whoever. I mean, it's, it's just really bad writing when when they when the screenwriters do that kind of thing. And um, so, I guess the major thing that happens in this episode, um, um, well, Nick and um, what's the name of that woman that kind of goes on missions for the compound, the Colonia? Col- yeah, Colonia. Um, yeah, anyway, they go hunting water, and uh, there's like the uh, Walmart from hell. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Hellmart, Hellmart. Yeah. Um, if they go up to it, it's you know a former big box store, and they've got a some other tough guys standing guard over it. And we want water. Well, what do you have to trade? And we have some drugs and. The rule was you could fill up the cart, and everything you could take uh, in the cart was that was all you could take. And so um, Nick stole this girl had lost her father at the beginning of the episode, and he stole um, some kind of um, muffins or something, you know, some some kind of a other little cookies or whatever they were. Yeah, yeah, but I guess something to uh, try to comfort her, you know, which was a really decent thing for him to do that he wasn't just looking up for himself. But anyway, the, the tough It guy, emphasizes that, that complexity of Nick again. That he's not <laughs> right. this, you know, this selfish, um, 
you know, ruthless, opportunistic sort of character. Well, and Strand the same way. I mean, again, he's not this complete. He's not the uber capitalist. So, or the, I think a lot of Strand, frankly, is a pose. Um, right, I, I really do. And I've been thinking that for weeks. The more and more we get to know him, uh, just, well, just like with Salazar, I mean, he's, you know, come out of one of those Latin American dirty wars, and he's, you know, this tough guy, but underneath that, he's very vulnerable. Right. Underneath the pleasant barber is a tough guy. And underneath the tough guy is, well, we don't quite know what. Mm-hmm. So, man, he's been kind of traumatized by all mm-hmm. this stuff he went through. And there, he does have a breaking point, uh, which he reached before the end of the uh, first half of the season. Um, and now, you know, with him, Ophelia, for all that she resented her father, he was kind of her guiding star. You know, he was the dominant uh, truth in her life. Was he really strong father? Think he's a monster, but to take care of me. And now he's not really strong, and he's not there to take care of her. And so she's still trying to form who she's going to be now. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's a good. I appreciate this because you and I have a friend or two who have, you know, spouses or or people in their lives that are, you know, from Latin America or some, you know, some place in Latin America and it's not from what I can see at least a stereotypical portrayal of people from, you know, Latin culture. I mean, it's a very human kind of portrayal. You know, it's it's not one that's, you know, just built on a bunch of, you know, a bunch of really cliched sort of images and it's not taco trucks on every corner is what Exactly. <laughs> exactly. These are well, these are real people. I mean as far right. as fiction can portray that. You know, this is classic verisimilitude and and mimesis, but it is these are real people who have real strengths and weaknesses and real real problems, real dreams and so forth. Both of which words mean art imitating life. Uh, yes. That, uh, you know, you, you want well-rounded characters. And even the minor characters, um, as time goes on, tend to get more well-rounded. You know, there's a humanity, even to the villains sometimes. And we've got to wonder, like the uh, former pharmacist who is now the de facto doctor and de facto leader of the colonia. Um, <laughs> fa- and possible de facto cult leader, too. <laughs> yeah, that was where I was going. What is his deal? Because, um, you know, um, I liked what he said last week about death is not to be feared, but it's not to be sought either. But now he's sending people into that compound with the walkers or the infected, as they call them, be eaten. Um, it reminded me, and I'm going to get back to this in a minute before we, you know, get right to the end of the the past week's episode. But uh, it reminded me of these people that are these snake handling type, you know, religious cultists or whatever, these schismatic type sects, you know, and they they handle snakes and they drink poison, this and the other, and it's just really it's it's the most bizarre kind of behavior, you know. Well, and it's not totally unlike what the um, housekeeper was doing on that compound, mm-hmm. um, you know, except that um, they're a little more pragmatic about what to do with the infected. They so putting them in a compound under, or in a, you know, sealed off area underneath everything. They, um, they're they using them kind of like a, a zombie moat uh, to keep people out, you know, if you come to us, you're going to have to come through them, and you know that'll give us time to react. I have to wonder still the great, as great being big or influential. I have to wonder about the great predecessor to this zombie plague, which is the Black Death of of Europe in the in the mid 14th century, and what people's reactions were to that to that particular mass death event you know because they estimate the scientists estimate it killed anywhere from a quarter to a third of the populace depending on where you lived and 
people's reactions, you know, human nature doesn't change from one era to the next. And so people's reactions may have been very much like this. And it was an apocalyptic event. Absolutely. Uh It was like a quarter or a third of the... Yeah, between a quarter and a third of the populace was killed off. I mean, you know, this and the Hundred Years' War between France and England helped spell the end of medieval feudalism, at least in the Western world, you know, if you... Subtract out, and, and I think it, the effects of it spread to other parts of Europe too. But I mean, the point is, it it is the end of their world. Just as parallel, this is the end of their world in this in this right. story. So the oh, parallels yeah. are pretty uncanny. Mores started breaking down like there's stories about people realizing that they're sick and just going out in the street and having sex with whoever because why not? You know, at this point. Their civilization is breaking down, and their god has abandoned them, and why follow these rules anymore? And there's a lot of that in both theories. Mm-hmm. Well, and the and in the case of the of the um, of the Black Death, a Black Plague. I mean, the the various forms of plague it, that was bubonic plague, but various forms of plague would break out. Uh, at different times before and even after the Black Death. I mean, that was the great bane of their age because they didn't have, you know, their, their sanitation was horrendous. You know, they didn't have um, clean water a lot of them. They didn't have access, certainly had no access to any kind of antibiotics or antiviral agents, either one. Well, so. and even public health was not yet a thing. Like, right. Had they known, they could have uh, killed off all the rats, you know, at the beginning of this and um, try to control the fleet population, um, you know, which most of us try to do at this point, even right. without the plague, but they didn't know. Um, but, you know, like uh, New Orleans during the Civil War mm-hmm. uh, was the first time in history that it was relatively free of um, yellow fever. That's because the much-reviled General Butler had um, ordered the city to be kept clean, you know, and um, so they didn't have all these pools of oil. He didn't understand the connection with mosquitoes, I don't think, but he just knew if you kept it clean, you would Right. You would lessen the chance of, of spread of disease. Right. There was something dirty that was doing this. Right. You didn't have to know it was. The I mean, the, in this case, the mosquitoes to benefit from. Well, I've I've heard something like that about the siege of Vicksburg. That when when Grant, I guess it was, finally took the city after the siege. This is in 1863. That he actually they blew up a lot of those bomb. I mean, this this is the first time in war people are digging bomb shelters because they were shelling the, the Union forces are shelling the city. Which was called the, the Gibraltar, Gibraltar of the South because it was considered impregnable, just like Gibraltar was considered, you know, there on the southern coast, the southern tip of Spain, facing across from Morocco. I guess is it Morocco? Anyhow, it's facing there across the North African coast. And they supposedly, the story goes that Grant bombed a lot of those. Um, even after the city was taken, he bombed a lot of those bomb shelters themselves. He, he blew them up with gunpowder. Because they didn't want people going in there. I mean, apart from the fact that they wanted to root out those Confederates, they wanted to keep disease from spreading. Right. Because those things were filthy. I mean, again, there was no sanitation. There was no nothing. And so the best thing you can do in those days is to, you know, cordon off those places, you know, in effect quarantine them. And the most dramatic way is to either burn or to explode things. Well, and um, that kind of reminds me of something at the very beginning this episode, <clears throat> uh, kid is um, running some of the the water, I guess, from I don't know if it was from a well or from a cistern or what, but it was just real brown and muddy. And the guy that was with him said, "Good luck if you drink that." Um, and so they know the water is bad, but then what's their solution? It's to go this place and get sorted out of some of their drugs and get several big bottles of water, um, which is a super short-term solution, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they need to be digging a well and uh, boiling the water or whatever. Yeah, it's well, and it's this every one of these episodes again. It brings up that to me that question: How did this get caused? 
you know what is the actual agent of the of the plague uh and it's i don't know if it's you know, y'all have said they have they still haven't revealed what the cause is in the original series uh, and it's a virus it's just it, uh, you know it's, virus it's it's certainly not a supernatural thing which is a distinct <laughs> contrast from what the you know the people in the black death uh, during the middle of the plague thought that this was the wrath of god being exacted upon them Playing a traditional zombie was a supernatural. Um, right. You know, it was a product of um, voodoo as opposed to some disease. Mm-hmm. I think Night of the Living Dead changed all that. Right. It's the more scientific, or at least pseudo-scientific take on the, you know, on the zombie motif. Yeah. It's zombies, you know, we're all governed by science rather than voodoo, because not brought back by some magic, but there's no explanation either beyond that. It's just there. In one of the um, funny ones, I think it had Emilio uh, um, Estevez. Yeah. Yeah, Martin Sheen's kid. Right. One of his sons. Yeah. I think he was in one that was kind of halfway funny, and it had. Uh, the cause is being this uh, green toxic waste that got spilled on the graveyard and so it's down. And then at the end of the show, after they've got the initial zombie outbreak, um, you see more of that stuff, you know, more of the toxic waste that's going to create more zombies. And that sounds like one of those, almost like a message-type film with a you know, oh, yeah. pro, pro-environmental, anti, anti-corporatist well, pollutant sort of monsters thing. Monsters are always a metaphor right. for what's wrong in our own society. So uh, science gone wrong, that's as old as Frankenstein. Right. Uh, well, and science, science without a conscience, basically. Yeah. Like we kept seeing in Fringe, in, in the show Fringe. And without prudence. You know, um, yeah, like uh, Walter's boast to the general and generals and friends that science has no limits. There's no reason for it. And, you know, it's the worst thing you can hear your scientists say. <laughs> well, that's that that is the Enlightenment again. I mean, that's yeah. the original tenets of the Enlightenment. You know, this idea that progress is inevitable and that we can human the hu- human reason can solve human science problems. And those are, if you accept those uncritically, then you're you're asking for problems to to come up. Well, yeah, because um, and that was what Mary Shelley was reacting against in the Frankenstein novel. It's almost a novella. It's really short, but mm-hmm. uh, you know the subtitle is the new Prometheus. Prometheus, of course, defied the will of the other gods. And stole fire, right? Stole fire, stole fire, created man, um, and brought all the sufferings that he went through and that we go through as a result because uh, he went too far. And so, and this is just a mortal man. He's not a god, but he's taking upon himself the right to do this. Right, right. Which may be the the origin of the virus or whatever of Walking Dead and Fear of the Walking Dead. So. It would be very logical for this to be a military virus gone wrong. Right. Um, you know, the plot almost demands it if they were going to really get into the real problem ever, which I don't know that they do. Uh, I, I, you know, the closest they came was uh, the last couple of episodes of the first season mm. and um you know then the battery power maybe they had a generator was that you generator. mean walking dead where they went to yeah. alexandria virginia or whatever and they no they were washington or something DC okay in, um, in atlanta and the guy was running low on uh, diesel fuel or whatever fuel he used for a generator when it ran out the thing exploded and that was the end of science you know you know, you can always, once again, though, I mean, these these stories like this, these apocalyptic-type yarns where you always, or, or I say always, you often have these vestiges. Again, like I said last week to you and Quinn about the lost race kind of thing, it's lost race sort of motif projected into an apocalypse. 
but yeah. you have you have a vestige of the old science, and I'm saying that to say there may be another scientific research center somewhere else, like in Europe, for example, or Australia or someplace. You know, even South America, you know, you look in a larger right. city. Yes, absolutely. Or, or again, Latin America, like in Mexico City, for example, or in or Buenos Aires. Or you know, under a mountain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, somewhere where there is this vestige that, you know, well, a good case of that is that series that started out pretty strong and went really weak to me, but that series, Jeremiah, on HBO yeah, yeah, or Cinemax, yeah. And it was a decent series, and one of the guys writing it was a pretty major comic book writer, I think, J. Michael Straczynski or somebody. But, yeah, it was a good series, and they eventually found Valhalla, if you recall, and it was this vestige of the U.S. military that squirreled away inside a mountain someplace. Well, you know, in these series, whenever you find somebody like that, it pretty quickly unravels after the heroes get there, like, you know, you find, Dr. Oh, 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 oh. You, you find Dr. Strangelove. You find Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. But, you know, the very fact of stumbling into, like, you know, this <clears> is an enclave, the Colonia. Colonia? Anyway. Um, they're a vestige, you know, a place where mm-hmm. the order did not fall apart, probably because they were so low down. Um and more capable of scrimping and getting along um, when everybody else, their civilization collapsed. So these people didn't have that much of it. But anyway, how long will it last? I would I would not expect this to be... <laughs> you would not start laying odds on the thing. Yeah, or which episode are they going to collapse? Because I don't think they'll get out of this season alive. There may be a couple of them, like the woman. But the uh, pharmacist, he's gone. Um you know, if they follow the pattern of the, the Walking Dead, <laughs> you know the the bad guys that they face early on are nearly as bad as the ones they face later. Mm-hmm. And so he's not that bad. They'll be able to overcome him. It's only Nick at this point. So, um, so they they keep getting worse and worse and worse. In other words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the governor was worse than Shane, and now they've got a. Uh, Who's the new bad guy, Negan, on, uh, you know, Walking Dead? He made his first appearance at the end of the last episode. He looks like he's going to hang tough for a while. Although, you know, for the series to make sense, he's got to defeat it at some point. Mm-hmm. And then they have to go on to the next <laughs> the next bad guy. I guess they lurch from bad guy to bad guy. Right. And then, you know, surviving when there is nothing like that is still a challenge, but uh, usually there'll be some human uh, bad person that comes along or bad group that they then have to... Um, although usually it turns out after you get to them that they're not really that bad. Um, like, the leader might be crazy or evil, but the rest of them are just trying to live, and they put in with the you know, person they thought they had the best shot with. Mm-hmm. I, I want to go back to the to the beginning of this particular week, or of this particular episode, rather, this for this week. Um, they go to that hotel, which was from what I, I watched the after show, uh, Talking Dead, right. this week, and um, they were talking about this hotel. It's a working, I mean, it's a real hotel. It's not oh, just yeah, a set they, that they created. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I thought I don't know if I saw the name of the hotel or saw the sign out in front, but it was it was it was ironic. Anyhow, this this sign on a marquee or something, Bienvenidos, welcome. <laughs> in Spanish. Oh yeah, 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 I remember that. <laughs> I mean, it was savagely ironic, you know, <laughs> just savagely well, ironic the thing sign. Was, how dumb was it to go into that hotel? You know, because you know there got to be any number of zombies, there may be desperate survivors. And then, you know, and horror... Always, Zombie vacation. <laughs> yeah. Horror always comes out to the... At some point, it relies on the trope of uh, people being stupid. Exactly. Have you seen that commercial where uh, they got this chainsaw murderer that's after these kids, and they're trying to figure out, what are we going to do? And one of them says, well, why don't we get in that running car? Exactly, yeah. Crazy. And they go hide in this shed with 
dozens of deadly implements and the guy's standing right behind them. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's got almost every stupid trope, right? Yeah, it's the, right with the I thought yeah. for two smart people that are supposed to be the leaders of the group, Annie and Strand are really doing some dumb stuff. At this point. They may have been. I have to think that those screenwriters were kind of being tongue-in-cheek with, with some of that because they're bound to know all those conventions, you know, like the like in the case of that commercial, you've got the, the dopey teenagers and you've got the, the vehicle that's just conveniently there on the scene with, you know, the engine running, it's idling, you know. <laughs> right. And, and you've also got the air of, of menace that's sort of hovering around the host. So this this had the same thing, if you think about it, except you had dopey adults, or not dopey, but adults who ought to know better. And then this hotel that, you know, the hotel is a stand-in for the old dark house or the old gothic, you know, gothic right. mysteries. That's all it is. It's just a lot more. It's a lot cleaner and a lot more glitzy, <laughs> but it's really an old dark house. Oh yeah. And so, what are you going to do? Alicia's kind of smart. She got the shower cleaned up. Hold up, but um, but like I say, Strand and Annie, this not smart at all. And the the. Uh, Sitting there getting smashed at the bar, <laughs> right. while while the world literally goes to hell in a handbasket. I thought that was pretty funny, actually. And the whole thing about them, you know, they take a shot and then they break the glass that they're yeah. drinking out of it. And it's this kind of nihilism that starts. If you remember from the first season, um, when Chris and Alicia go into the neighbor's house, they start breaking stuff just They're teenagers. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like uh, these two have, maybe it's because they've been under so much pressure for so long that they have to let off some steam. Right, like right, it's like a safety valve, yeah. Yeah. Well, the, then, uh, you know, the apocalypse will do that to a person. <laughs> it sets them up for the next week. Uh, because, you know, in the episode surrounded by zombies. It kind of made me think, curiously enough, maybe not so much. I wish they would do this. Of course, I guess this is why they're writing it and I'm not. But it made me almost wish that we would have heard some of that ah, kind of music in the background from the, the spaghetti westerns of Clint Eastwood, like that um, well, Ennio Morricone. You know, Z Nation, have you been watching that? Uh-uh, uh-uh. Now, that's a farce. You know, it's a zombie farce. Um, <laughs> that's pretty funny. But they couldn't do that and be taken seriously. But so so they actually have, like, some pretty broad comedy in Z Nation. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, um, one week they'll have nuclear zombies that get exposed to radiation, and another week they'll have uh, zombies that are high on zombie weed, <laughs> um, which ironically makes them more intelligent. Um, oh, so you can have a conversation with a zombie. <laughs> right. You know, they get a little more with it. Um, <laughs> That's pretty funny. But, um, yeah, that one's, that one's built for more satire. <laughs> far where, where does that come on? I've, I've, I don't want to guess I've even heard of it. Okay. It's the nation on sci-fi. Um, and it's another post-apocalyptic kind of a thing, I guess. Yeah, they've got one guy named Murphy that's, um, they've given him a cure. You can be bitten by a zombie and you won't die, but it does strange things to you. Like, you turn dark gray, like, you know, almost looks like a zombie. And under certain circumstances, he can take telepathic control of zombies and make them do what he wants to. So, um... You know, it's something, but it's not exactly like a, you know, smallpox vaccine. Mm. Well, back to the bar. Uh, yes. So standing around, you know, getting smashed, throwing glasses at the at the mirrors or whatever, and essentially watching the world go to hell. Um, that is very cleverly, they juxtapose that against what's happening with the two young women. Right, because, I mean, the young women are actually kind of serious. They're, 
Well, it's, it's, narr- it's narratively, narratively, it's so effective too because you have not only are they serious, but you've got some, real, <laughs> I guess, for lack of a better word, action going on with them and suspense that is again set right against these two people at the bar, essentially crying in their beer. I mean, literally and figuratively crying in their beer. Well, and making racket. I think Stan plays the piano, and yeah. So you know, and all of that just serves to bring the zombies out. Um, which is totally predictable. Again, this is a kid hiding in a shed with a killer and a bunch of farm implements. <laughs> that um, was pretty clever. When he's when Strand, you know, plays a few keys on the you know, a few chords on the piano, I think he was playing some of their own theme music, wasn't he? Some of the music that was used as part of the score. If he was, check that out because uh that's a real technique and what is it there's a Greek term for that where the the music that somebody plays is is actually a direct steal from the theme music itself, and and they did that in some of the James Bond films. I know, I think um, Live and Let Die maybe has that, and there's another one where they're actually playing part of a the theme from that particular entry in the series. Huh. But it, it's a real technique, and it's I can't think of what it's called now, but it's it's a it's like a the ultimate end joke kind of thing, or like it's almost, it's more like I guess like what like metafiction or something, but where the fiction is commenting on fiction itself, right? And thus commenting on art, and so it's it's kind of that sort of thing going on. But I, I kept when I heard him playing that, and I thought, geez, that sounds suspiciously like this music from this episode. But he was banging away, playing that really discordant sort of stuff on that piano. I'm sure the internet has uh, noticed. Which, the what it was. <laughs> Oh yeah, there's somebody that's. You know, beating us to the punch or whatever. <clears throat> but I just thought that was really effective from a narrative perspective to have them sitting in the bar and then they would cut away and show the two young women. Right. And and also the scene of horror when they find the body, the, the guy that's it's hanged himself in the in the shower. Yeah, now that that was a uh, that that was pretty. Horrifying, if I may use the word. You know. <laughs> and pretty effective, I think. You yeah, know, again, that really, really builds that suspense when they look in there and there's this guy, and he's come back and he's, you know. Right, there are cases of suicide over the two series um, where they didn't know to damage the brain so much that they couldn't come back, and so then they wind up being zombified in whatever condition they uh, they died. This brings up another question about the zombies. So uh, so they start dropping out of the window. And yeah. They, yeah, they just talk about <laughs> graveyard humor in a way, but they're literally dropping like flies. And we see these bodies going out, which is there is reminiscent of the stock market crash in 29 where people are dropping out of skyscrapers because the market right. is tanked. Uh, and that was the first thing I thought. I thought, geez, it's like shades of twenty nine and Black Thursday or whatever it was when they're Black Friday, whatever when they when they fell out. But then I'm sitting there thinking to myself, you know, this is again, this is this death of the current order, um, right? You know, the neoliberal, uh, neo capitalistic order or whatever. That's again, that's this is what this whole thing is describing. Yeah, because this is a luxury hotel, and so. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of is evocative of like the death of the one percent. They always thought that my friends, you know, I'm a look above everybody else, and with my tools and my money and my smarts, I'll be able to do better than anybody else. Yeah, you know, as soon as he lands, his boat gets stolen, so he's just another person walking around now. <laughs> yeah, for for our libertarian listener, uh, ask the question: Who is John Galt? You know, Ayn Rand's uh, foolish hero in one of her well, narratives. He's dessert. Well, yeah, yeah. Who cares who's John Galt? <laughs> I mean, honestly, because John Galt goes the way that everybody else goes; he becomes a zombie. Mm-hmm. Or just another harried survivor trying to live another day. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not a the apocalypse is not a pretty place, and you're not going to win by your might necessarily. There's a this. Does it make you or remind you of Stephen Crane in the Open Boat in a lot of ways? Because you know, if you remember yeah. at the end of the Open Boat, that really strong is it the cook when he has a character who's really strong, he winds up dying. 
Right. So there's a, there's as much chance in these things and as much coincidence in these things as there is survival of the fittest. Right. So, and survival of the lucky. Exactly. It's the lucky that that may survive. It's just a fluke. You know, you, there's no rhyme or reason to it. Um. <clears throat> yeah. Um. I did think that one thing I was going to point out about the bar scene before we get off of it. Um is I guess it is a good bonding experience for the people that in the group that have been kind of most at odds with each other. You know, Strand and um Madison. Uh-huh. Um that um you know, they've gotten drunk together so now they're buddies or <laughs> something like that. They're drinking buddies. Right. <laughs> They're drinking buddies, and what I'm dying to see, um, oh, uh, Nick Stepdad, I can't think of his name now. Uh, his last name was, was it Curtis, whatever, but the guy that's from Australia or New Zealand. Chris's dying, stepdad. Yeah, yeah, okay. Oh, Chris yeah, 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 Chris's dad, Nick's stepdad, that's right. Yeah, I'm dying to see him come back. Maybe they'll be on next week. I think I saw some uh, previews that included them. Cliff Curtis, that's his name, his real yeah, name. Yeah, that, that's the annoying thing about getting them all split up. Is, um, then it becomes like gun smoke, which every week, <laughs> especially in the later years, was just a different character off the show, separated from all the other characters. It was like right. everybody's worn out from all these episodes. So. That, that was the whole thing, supposedly, that, that James Arness was tired and... You know, so they let's take the camera away from Matt Dillon and put it on Festus or Doc Adams or Miss Kitty or right. Newley or whoever else. This is a very special Doc Adams episode. <laughs> this is a very special An exploration Festus of the trivial. I think, I mean, if, as long as they don't do too much of this in Fear of the Walking Dead, I think they can get away with it. Now, what yeah. I, I got a little bit unnerved. I think it was on Talking Dead where they said something about they were going to be doing some of this kind of thing this season and, I mean, again, and I like introspection probably as much as you do or anybody else does. But if you get too introspective, you're not going to be. It's going to be like a lot of navel gazing before it's over. Right. If they if they harp on it, in other words. Typically, you only do one character once. So, um, like we may go back and see things from Madison or Alicia's uh, viewpoint, but I don't think we'll go back and see Nick from his own viewpoint again. Um, and they don't usually do it with all the characters. They just do it when it drives the plot. And it may be, too, a, a function of their popularity. In other words, if they start getting a lot of letters and emails and such from fans or the followers of the series who are mostly going to be fans who are saying, let's see more about Salazar, the guy that I like, or, or they may be saying, let's see more about Dustin's such characters. They may... The screenwriters and producers and so forth may respond to that and may start delving into their backstories. Well, rather famously in Breaking Bad, um, you know, Walter White was the main character, but then he had this kind of slacker from his high school that was going to be his partner, and that guy was supposed to die at the end of the first season, and their chemistry was so good because, you know, that was where the humor came in was the two of them fighting about stuff. Um, uh, you know, like uh, Walter White saying, don't you have somebody you can sell this stuff to? Like a dealer? And uh, Jesse says, uh, Jesse, I did until you killed him. This <laughs> <laughs> great writing. And so they kept him around to the end of the series. He was the last one standing, um, criminal-wise. I wonder from that, then, if the if the fans kind of pushed that. In other words, if they saw that thing and said, you know, we like this character. Well, fan reaction. I mean, you, you remember how, um, you're old enough to remember how Fonz was just a kind of a character in the Happy Days series until... Everybody went crazy over him, and okay, well, let's write more stuff for him. Mm-hmm. They wound up moving him upstairs, you know, and so he could be closer. And um, it was, um, you know, they do 
they are sensitive to their audience, which is smart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because otherwise the show, and and then there are good shows too that frankly tank that don't ever develop their audience. But then there are some bad ones that do develop an audience. But you have to hope there are good shows that do develop an audience. Yeah, you've got to keep your audience once you've got them. Yeah, and that means doing. I mean, the, the, what what has to be done? It means you know getting good writers. And you know people that, and that means people that understand character and plot development, and all that kind of thing. But it also means everything from people that know how to shoot the scenes, you know, good camera people, to good lighting people and costuming. I, I got to looking at this episode, and also really episodes throughout this series. And, and I bet you it's a pretty expensive series, at least the costume and, and to do makeup for, because it's not it's not real cheesy looking stuff. If you look at the makeup, it's pretty pretty incredible. You know, the special effects and so forth is really really. I think incredible. that whole you know yacht and endless pool for the yacht to be on mm-hmm. right next to the ocean that had to be very expensive. No, yeah, yeah. This show's got to have a it would have to have a pretty sizable budget to do what they're doing. And you think about too all the people they've got to hire to be extras to be shambling around those streets. You know, in their zombie zombie garb. Well, and then they move so much, you don't really get, like, there's some sets you can use for a while, but you tend to burn through them, sometimes literally, you know, let's set this thing on fire. Um, And then all of that, like, you know, another show with really expensive sets is um, um, Game of Thrones. However... They have a lot of sets that they've been using since the very first season. So, you know, once you've made your investment in the set, then as long as you keep going, well, the you know, the the marginal price for it comes down. I'm, um, you mentioned something earlier about the... Um we were talking about the science and the zombies and the the CDC over in Atlanta, blow, you know, the guy detonating the place to, you know, or, or I guess it detonated itself or whatever, but then it mm-hmm. goes up and, and, you know, this explosion and so forth, and I guess a fire too. It makes me wonder if they if there are any other, well, like this guy here in this particular, this current series is his name Alejandro, but he's that, that pharmacist who's serving more or less as a doctor. Right. <laughs> it made me wonder the law of averages would say this. If there's a guy like that around, there are bound to be others like that around somewhere if they yeah. can just meet and establish some kind of an impromptu consortium, you know, and, and try to start studying the, the zombie plague. Well, and when you um, first step to the governor's village, uh, Wood, mm-hmm. Woodbury, um, he had his science guy doing just that. Like, they were trying to... Um, Isolate the virus, or well, more see what you could do with the zombies. Like, was there anything left after mm-hmm. after they had turned into a zombie? If you played them their favorite song, or showed them their favorite picture, or you know had their favorite person by them when they came back, would any of that remain? But of course, um, they didn't get very far, and then the whole place burned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, most things never. Seem to do very well. So um, the, the solution there would be to capture them and then chain them to something or other and see if they'll how they react. I guess that's what they were doing. But right. like I say, camera cropper, nothing worked. And uh, if you want to see that kind of show, have you seen the last ship? Mm-mm, mm-mm. Um, the um, the premise is. He's got this um, Navy destroyer, and it's been going for six months on a super-secret mission mm-hmm. to the Arctic. And then when they come back and they go back online radio-wise, um, they uh, find out the world has died from some kind of flu. Mm-hmm. Like 95 99% of everybody is dead. And, um, you know, they're very few immune, and otherwise you just have to hope you avoid the, you know, um, quarantine. Right, right. And work. And so uh, they come up with a cure, and then they start 
you know, the first season is them coming up with the cure, and then the other season then is rebuilding civilization. Like, you know, who's the last person left in the cabinet that can be president? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And what's it called? The Last Ship. Is it a so it is a season? I mean, I'm sorry, it's a series. It's not just a one-off like a movie or. No, it's uh, it's on the third season now. And, and uh, what? Who's carrying that? Uh, I think TNT. But it's, it's another it's another apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic. Yeah, drama. It, it's like the apocalypse but with no zombies. You know, it is mm-hmm. a disease apocalypse, but once you're dead, you're dead. That's another. That's um. Oh, what's that thing? Is it Michael Crichton, The Andromeda Strain? Maybe mm-hmm. where that that that's a flu pandemic that that just is devastating. And uh, except that this one, I, I guess the Andromeda Strain, the threat of the pandemic is present, whereas in this one, the the, the threat has become reality. Right. Right. It's gotten out and killed everybody. Again. I think it may have been one of our own biological weapons mm-hmm. got out. Uh, I can't remember. That was the first season. I don't want you that closely. Um, but it's another ca- it's another cautionary thing too, because most of these right. apocalyptic things are nearly. I guess all of them pretty much are cautionary. Like you know, be careful lest this happen to you or whatever is always the message. Um. What did you think about the Alicia Madison confrontation? Where is that uh, in the story? Uh, that may have been early. I know you came in a few minutes. At one point, um, Madison was still determined to spend all of her time looking for Nick. Oh, is that when they first found the hotel? Yeah. Okay, well, yeah, because I did miss that. that. Um, but anyway, her daughter... Finally, has had all she can stand. Says, "You've got a child right here. You know, I'm your daughter. I'm here. I'm not somewhere else. I'm not dead. I'm not high. Pay some attention to me." And Madison still can't hear it. <laughs> you know, she has put so much attention into Nick over the years mm-hmm. that she has neglected her quote-unquote good daughter, you know, the daughter that didn't get in right, trouble. Right. Um, and so the, the the kid in the house that took up all of the energy and all of the um, attention was someone who was acting out in troublemaking. And um, she still can't break loose of that kind of thinking even at this point. You know, that she just kind of looks at her and walks away. Those kinds of things like that, and because I didn't see it, obviously. So what I'm about to say is going to sound crazy, but I guess if people hear this out, they'll understand where I'm coming from. Those kinds of things like that really leave me, I don't say cold, but since I didn't grow up with my siblings, those are alien to me, even though I've got right, right. siblings. Hard to relate. Exactly. I can't relate. I literally cannot relate to them because I don't know how to relate to them because I've got four younger siblings. We didn't grow up with, with, with one another, and so consequently that's just as alien to me as the planet Mars is. Well, and I mean, even for me, you know, neither my sister nor I were in a whole lot of trouble growing up. Um, And so um, we didn't have that kind of dynamic. You almost almost have to be in a family with, um, say, somebody with a mental illness or Or addiction or something. Right. um, Something like that that will take all of the attention of the family and give them their requisite drama and then there's no room for any more drama. So, sorry, kid, you just have to be quote-unquote good. By which yeah, I mean, you suck it up, in other requires words. my attention. Just suck it up and let me throw all of my effort towards this other child. Right. And, you know, even with Nick just on his walkabout, at least you still can't... Uh, getting attention from her mom. And I don't see, I mean, assuming they get out of this zombie hotel, all right. <laughs> Talk about Hotel California. <laughs> yeah. Hotel Baja, California. Exactly, um, exactly. Uh, Madison is going to have to come some kind of reckoning with 
her dysfunctional relationship with her family. That's, you know, to me, this makes perfect sense from a narrative perspective to set this part of the story in Baja, which is a pretty forbidding place, and yet it has a very, it's a it's a beautiful place in 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 that very kind of way, in that forbidding sort of way. You know, it's like Burke talking about the, the our ideas of the sublime and the beautiful. Mm-hmm. And the Baja area is very rocky, very mountainous area, and yet in its way is very very majestic. And it, so it makes sense to just to have tourists, you know, going there to travel and, you know, see the sights and so forth, but also to set a story there. Um, right. Well, yeah. it gets us out of the Georgia countryside and also out of, um, out of, um, off that boat. Mm-hmm. So the boat's gone, so we're not going to get back on the yacht. Thank well, it gets us, gets us out of a, um, a European and African American type culture too. I mean, you look at where we are now. We're in a in a Latin culture. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is Southern uh, European. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's um it's a very very different world culturally, uh, in so many ideologically everything. I mean, it's just very it's radically different in some respects, or many many respects, not even just some, but in many many respects from what we've been seeing back in the East. And so the people of a necessity are going to react in very different ways mm-hmm. to the to this worldwide crisis of this apocalypse. They will, and I think that's good, you know, that we'll get into another culture and therefore another way of reacting. Um, this will be interesting to see, once again, if they have a, a zombie series set in Europe at some point or Africa or someplace, and where you get even different reactions to the, to the apocalypse. I mean, I could see this happening. Uh, in a way, it would be good. In a way, it could be kind of questionable. I'm not going to say bad, but it could be questionable because you wind up, you know, milking the old cow until she can't give any more milk. Well, it would depend on how well it's done. All right. Well, it could like it could be like those. What did they call them? But it's that series that some of which that you don't really like very well. It's that in NCIS or whatever it is. But anyhow, <laughs> yeah. those, those 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 crime series really, and they again, they keep on milking the cow until she runs dry. Right, and you just eventually you eventually you hit a point of diminishing returns. It just it doesn't work anymore because they they've overworked it. Like when I see zombies falling from the sky, I think back to the episode in Walking Dead when zombies fell through the roof and <laughs> um, started raining down on. Uh, so you know they're they're already running out of ideas about how to introduce zombies into the scenery. You know, they're mm-hmm. only, it can come up from below, it can come down from above, or it can come at you from around. So that's kind right. of it. <laughs> it would be, well, and maybe this is more of a plot for Z Nation, but it would be funny if they find zombies with a little bit of sentience and they can do things like run a business or, <laughs> you know. There's that, series in England, BBC, where they had figured out how to treat zombies and bring them back um, as long as they got their treatment. It's kind of like diabetes. Or HIV. Uh-huh. It's got your treatment. You would keep your human intelligence. It's a manageable illness or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the name of it. Well, I'm interested. I will be interested to see in this one, and I want to go back to the kind of the the culmination of this episode here in a bit. Well, a couple of things, actually, one in the in the warehouse, but also one in that, that very final scene with Nick and the where the Alejandro and the the locals there in the Colonia are in what amounts to a religious meeting. But I'm kind of curious. Number one, and I go back to this, is whether they will ever cross over this series with the parent series. Uh, if somebody decides to make a road trip and they, for some reason or another, and they, I mean, they would have to come up with some really, really good idea so that they would meet in the first place. Um, um, yeah, hold on. I think, um, I think Quinn may be.
Okay, I'm back. What were you saying? I'm sorry. Yeah, was that Quinn? Yes, he may be able to call in. We'll see. But, yeah, just uh, again, I would like to see a crossover at some point. Um, yeah, that's possible. But, it, but they need to have a good reason for it. In other words, I don't think a crossover never works just for its own sake. You've got to have a good motivation for it. That uh, you know, these fans in comic books are, are really, really prone to fall into that trap about crossovers. They really want right. crossovers, but again, you you got to have a good reason for it. And if you got a good reason, then yeah, bring on the crossover, absolutely. But it just it needs to come naturally as a part of that plot of both series that they're working towards. You know, the, the characters meeting up somehow or another. Well, they had that crossover with that woman, the Asian American woman that. Mm-hmm. Had been the star of I think Flight 452, something like that. Remember, and she was so mad because they cut her loose with her um, with her the kids she was watching, and then she was kind of one of the leaders on that uh, tuna boat. You know, from last season, I can see a place where you could have a crossover where one of those government officials might have been aboard a plane or something that goes down and might have been, say, going from the West Coast to the East Coast, or vice versa in our case. And, and they're going from the East Coast to the West Coast, and they might have been going out there trying to get specimens of the zombie, you know, the zombie, or the plague-infected people and trying to figure out what was the cause of it or whatever, and then going to fly it back to the CDC before the place. Because isn't this supposed to be taking place right as the plague started as opposed to months and months yeah. out. Right. So yeah, it's no, taking yeah, place a little earlier. Time has even passed on the walking dead because their seasons are so short. But they're ahead of us in this series. So you could have somebody where the CDC is still trying to limp along, in other words, in this in this series. Right. Or like a, a branch of the CDC in a large city like in L.A. or San Francisco. Yeah, they may have something out there. Or Seattle. For that matter. But well, didn't they say, though, that that area had gone dark? But that doesn't mean, you know, that deep in the bunker under Microsoft, uh, Bill Gates doesn't have some kind of a right. secret laboratory, you know. Right. Well, or that there's, well, or like, like in Jeremiah, that there's a NORAD facility of some sort. Right. Where somebody's in a NORAD facility. Or like up in Alaska is a good case in point where you have the early warning stations up there. I mean, there could be well, somebody up in Alaska. Well, the nation, again, they've got one guy manning the, he's got all the, oh, he's the sole survivor of that base that was up there in Alaska. He's manning the satellites and keeping an eye on things and trying to get through the people on the radio. That's in our middle. You know, what's left of, before is up there. Well, in keeping with my usual recording lines, if I can remember them and then quoting them back, I like this line that somebody spoke, and I didn't get the character's name as I wrote this down because I'm trying to listen and type these things into the phone at the same time. But one of the characters mouths this line that really captures this whole series, but in particular this episode. The character says, we're not going to make it. That's pretty pretty grim. Yeah. I don't know. That's what I'm saying. I didn't write down who said it particularly, but it's it embodies this whole kind of again this world that you know is besieging what's left of our world. You know, we're not going to make it. It does seem to hark back to the the open boat. Mm-hmm. Where, um, now, whoever it is that they're praying to, they just aren't out there. They're not fixing anything. Um, you know, there's this one show where um, Rick is at a crisis of faith. And, um, now, he's on the original series? Right. He's praying for some sign uh, that God's still out there. And then there, this deer comes walking up. And, um, you know, it's just beautiful. And he and his son are kind of, oh, gee, look at that beautiful deer. And so his son walks up to pet the deer, and then somebody shoots from the other side and shoots through the deer and the kid. Uh, and so that's your epiphany, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in this in this world. Mm-hmm. That's that right out of Job. You know, that's his theodicy, you know. why Is there justice in the world and why do the innocent suffer? Uh that's right, yeah. 
I mean, it's probably one of the most ancient kinds of questions to ask, and probably one of the most, don't you imagine, one of the most ancient kinds of literature uh, to explore that that particular question, why do the innocent suffer, or why, why, why does humanity in general suffer? Right. Yeah, why is there evil in the world? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, zombie apocalypse isn't enough of an explanation because it doesn't explain why people start acting the way they do. And I'm not sure the degree to which people would be that horrible. Um, you know, we've had disasters when people didn't go to that extreme. But then they... You know, civilization would always show back up at some point. And we've had people that have brought disasters, you know, uh, or, or brought on brought on the apocalypse, so to speak. I mean, like the Nazis, as a for example, or Joseph right. Stalin. You know, Joseph Stalin mass murdering something over ten million of his people. You know, so you have to question who's the bigger monster, Hitler or Stalin? But but we saw we saw that with last week when we were talking about the. These roving bands, or these zombies out, sham again. They're shambling around the countryside, but then these survivalists or whatever stop and kill them, and they they're actually enjoying the killing. So you have to wonder who are the bigger monsters. Is it these creatures that are just essentially mindless, or is it the people that are out intentionally doing this and enjoying it while they do it? You know, killing them. Right, the people that kind of. You know, when you get to do whatever you want to, because you don't do as much as slavery. And so they become the real evil. Um, you know, you would say, say, a hurricane or landslide is bad, but you wouldn't say it's evil because there's no will attached to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not it's not malevolent, or it's not an active sort of a thing. That they're, you know, right. Uh, well, I see we've been going about an hour. Do you have anything else you want to point out? Yeah, let's look at that last scene because it's the setup for next week. Right, the that cliffhanger. Yeah, I wrote exactly. It's a classic cliffhanger, and I look, I like that. I wrote this down: a cultic final scene with Nick because I think in the Talking Dead they were they were those actors were acting as though to, to use a terrible sort of a pun. But they were acting as though it wasn't a bad thing. I don't know. Just the whole idea of cults really scares the bejesus out of me. And that had all the earmarks of a cult and cultic behavior and Nick falling in with a cult. To me, well, I mean, did, it, did it strike you that way or am I just... Yeah, they they aren't a healthy group. You know, they, I can see the reason behind most of the stuff they're doing, but... That's not their reason. They've got some kind of weird religious thing, and mm-hmm. that's going to take them in bad directions because it always does in this series or in these series. Well, it may be in real life too. I mean, Chase yeah. Jim Jones. Well, yeah, Jim Jones, David Koresh. You know that uh, that Dawn, whatever. I can't even think of the name of the cult. But anyhow, the woman that played the the communications officer from Star Trek, Nichelle Nichols. You know, her brother got swept up in one of those death cults too, and he was, <sighs> you know, he was. He killed himself or committed suicide as a result of one of those cults. So, I mean, we've got a history of those things in America, in, in America and probably in other countries, too. And, right, and not all of them end in mass murder, suicide. Right, but they do, they, do, they, do, they do often include abuse. You know, that's, that's at the right. very least. They include abuse and, you know, just all kinds of some very, very antisocial type behaviors. Oh, Yeah. And so, to me, that that made that that last scene quite frightening, actually. Well, and that may be where our <clears throat> metaphor for the week is, because um, the, the basic characteristic of a cult is this closed system of mm-hmm. understanding the world, and the only people you trust are the people in the cult with you. And, you know, and in fact, the cult leader, too. Yeah, we we have people in our broader society today that are verging upon that. The way they know is they watch the certain news channels, mm-hmm. they listen to the certain leaders, and um, you know if you aren't from there, then we don't believe you. You know, well, they, they set up. To me. That's just they set up the us versus them mentality, 
And yeah. it's also it's also a very binary sort of a or a dichotomous sort of morality too, that we're completely right, everybody else is completely wrong and going to hell. Right. And we're right because we're a member of this tribe and so uh, this kind of closed system it's very dangerous. You can see a small scale in that show, but you can see it large scale all around us. We're right. You just hit it. I mean, we're right because we say we're right. It's classic circular logic. Um, and so when I see him at the very end, we, you know, the camera cuts away from the, the what amounts to the preacher, Alejandro, cuts away from him to Nick, and he starts chiming in with the cult and well, this other group of people. And I'm thinking, God, that's mass psychology, which is uh-huh. you know part of the basis of cultic behavior. So it made that closing scene particularly unsettling for me um right <laughs> who, who tries to be a rational person and, and also that's another thing with cults i mean they they depend fundamentally on irrationality yeah and who do they go at? Is, um, you know most of their other behaviors even the thing about the guy going in him to die and you know feed the other oh, infected and become one himself you know makes a sort of sense although i wouldn't want to be <laughs> but when you add to that this quasi-religious stuff, that's mm-hmm. not going to come off well in this series. You know, that's never the answer. Well, and you think about it in, in so-called real life. Who goes and joins a cult? It's someone that's vulnerable to right. the message. They're vulnerable. They're, they're maybe <laughs> in a situation where they're poor or economically depressed. They may have lost a job. They or may in have... the middle of a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, maybe. More vulnerable than that. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, it's again, it's I mean, these are it's what we've been talking about about all these metaphors, all the all these things, all these stories are doing is describing a heightened reality. And Nick is your classic outsider. Mm-hmm. He may chant with them, but he's not going to go along with that for long. I don't believe because um, you know he's concerned about comforting the little girl that lost her dad. He's he's alienated, you know. He's right. separated yeah. from he's separated from the you know from the society at large, but also from his more nuclear society, which is his family. Right. He's separated he from himself. He was alienated from his family and he's looking for somewhere to join, but this can't be it. You know, they're just too far off base. And yeah, like I say, they're going to be gone before the season's out. So. Um, that's my prediction. <laughs> what was and this one called? What was this episode called again? Was it Los Muertos? I think so, The Dead. The Dead, exactly. Yeah, that's what it is in Spanish. And and uh, who are the dead? I mean, it, you can say it's the zombies, but you can say it's the society itself. Right, the society is falling off the edge. All right, well, for Fear the Walking Dead, a podcast, I'm Bruce McGee. I'm Steve Payne. We want to thank all of you for listening to our analysis this week. Uh, we hope that you'll come back next week and join us for watching the next episode of Fear the Walking Dead, and we hope that you'll also join us for next week's episode of Fear the Walking Dead, a podcast. Bye for now. 